0: I just want to affirm the person in the room this morning that feels like when God's eyes are on them, he's mad at them. I want to affirm and encourage the person who in the room today that feels like when God's eyes are on them, um, he's annoyed by them or that he just feels like you're a little too much. When the Lord looks at you, his grace abounds. And so as we seek your face together today, Jesus, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you move as we lean in? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Glad to be with you this morning, my name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here. Been looking forward to our time together this morning since I stayed up until 11 o'clock last night watching the Jesus Music documentary on Amazon. Um, if you didn't know that exists, it's a, it is a documentary that traces all of the ways that we have done music as people of Jesus since the Jesus people. So it's on Amazon. About an hour and 45 minutes long. It's super worth it, super worth your time, so I'm really excited about this morning. In the late 1960s, Chuck and Kay Smith were pastoring a non-denominational congregation in Costa Mesa, California. They were located smack dab in the middle of conservative middle-class Orange County. Chuck and Kay found themselves troubled by the hippies who were gathering at nearby Huntington Beach. We were just there. They would often go gawk at the long-haired, unshowered teens. In a 2000 interview, Chuck recalls, listen to this, I saw them as parasites upon society. My original thought was, why don't they cut their hair and get a job and live a decent life? He said, they were definitely a threat to society. They were radicals, smoking marijuana, dropping LSD, disrupting things, challenging the status quo. Chuck wanted nothing to do with the Jesus people, and then he was interrupted. Listen to what my friend Mike has to say about that. God told Chuck Smith and his wife to go down to the beaches in Southern California and just pray for all the young people hanging out there, doing drugs and doing stuff. And Chuck said, no, they they need to be judged. And the Lord said, I told you, go down there and start praying for them. Well, what happened is he was praying, like I think the third time, and he just began to weep. And he realized that God was saying to him, this is my heart for this generation. I don't want to judge them for what they're doing. I want, I'm weeping for them and I'm looking for people whose hearts are broken for this emerging generation, for this boomer generation. Chuck was brokenhearted by conviction of the Holy Spirit over this generation and uh, Amanda, could you go back to that picture of them on the beach? So Chuck Smith is the guy on the left uh, of all the people to reach a hippie generation, right? Wild kind of balding head, a belly, not that I have room to talk. Um, but as he um, was reaching out to these beach bum hippies, he met the guy on the, name, guy on the right, and that guy's name is Lonnie Frisbee, which is a great name. And by the way, you see, uh, you see some great footage in the Jesus Movement, the Jesus Music documentary, of him talking about, he, he's sharing the gospel, and he says, people tell me I look like Jesus. And he says, I can't think of anybody better to look like Um And so he meets Lonnie Frisbee, and Chuck is so surprised that Lonnie is this sincere Christian. And so Chuck Smith asked Lonnie Frisbee to become like an unofficial missionary to the Huntington Beach hippies. And it wasn't long before Frisbee's evangelism bore fruit, and he had a growing core of long-haired, casually attired, barefoot or sandaled youth, troping amid the button-down straight congregation At Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel. Chuck was already a successful pastor and he had just boosted his ministry with dozens of young people who were eager to be discipled, to grow in the things of the Lord. The only problem was that most of them, as hippies, were homeless. So with the help of Lonnie and his, Lonnie's wife is Connie, Lonnie and Connie Frisbee, um, Lonnie and Connie Frisbee and their friend John Higgins, Calvary Chapel purchased an apartment in April of 1968 to house their born-again hippies. They quickly outgrew that apartment, so they rented a two-bedroom house in Costa Mesa. The church paid $50 of the $90 a month rent, okay? So putting their money where their mouth is. This was Calvary Chapel's first communal house, which was called the House of Miracles. The House of Miracles was modeled after the communal house in which Connie and Lonnie lived for a time in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the name of that house was the House of Acts. The House of Acts. So with that in mind, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. But I first want to zoom out because some of you have found yourselves in a conversation that seems a little strange. Why are we doing a history lecture at church? Uh, Well, we probably should do more of those. But why are we doing a history lecture at church? Why are we digging in here? This is the second part in a three-part series we're doing on the Jesus People Movement, a movement of the Holy Spirit that took place in the late 1960s among the counterculture within American society at that time, free love, flower power, hippies. Billy Graham hailed it as an impending revival to restore America's spiritual greatness, the Jesus Movement. Larry Eskridge, who studied the Jesus Movement in depth and interviewed dozens of people who came to Christ during the Jesus Movement, he would say that it is one one of the most lasting influences on American Christianity today. We're looking at the Jesus Movement because it seems like the time is ripe for a new Jesus Movement. We're looking at the Jesus Movement to learn from their radical, almost instant obedience to the things Jesus said. And this morning, I want us to look, last week we looked at how they did mission and evangelism, and this week I want to look at how they did community and spiritual family. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. A familiar passage to some of us. Jesus has died He's risen again. He's now ascended to heaven in fulfillment of his promises. He's poured out the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, on the early church, and empowered by the presence of that Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a sermon in the city of Jerusalem through which many, many, many people come to faith. And immediately after the preaching of that sermon, these new Jesus people begin building Jesus-shaped communities And in Acts chapter 2, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us what those Jesus-shaped communities looked like. And he says this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They were devoted to the Lord's Supper. That's why we receive communion every week here, because we're devoted to the Lord's Supper. See what I'm saying? A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of Of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I just want to draw your attention to three things happening in this passage. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is joy. Joy. Joy is the feeling that we have when we are glad to be together. Joy is what I had and what Jack had when we went to pick him up after his first day of preschool and he came running out the door to see us. Right? (laughs) Acts 13.52 says all the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Joy is a defining element of the Jesus people in the book of Acts, the original Jesus people. They were glad to be together, especially around tables and in each other's homes. That's the other thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 46, is that they met in homes. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the earliest Jesus people went from house to house. Peter sparks a revival among Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And in Acts 5.42, Luke says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. They, they were glad to be together. They shared their homes. And in fact, they shared everything they had. That's what verse 44 of chapter 2 says. It says they shared everything they had. I looked up what the Greek word for everything means. Do you know what it means? Everything. See, when we think about how we fund ministry, we think about your tithes and offerings. But before there were tithes and offerings, there was a sharing. That was the first economic model of of the early church, was sharing. The next economic model was making. Paul was a tent maker. Then came giving. Right? But it was sharing. They shared their possessions. In Acts 4, 32 through 35, it says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt, listen to this, they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Now some, some conservative in the room is freaking out because this sounds like communism. This isn't communism, this is family. This is family. Right? Right? All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. That's Acts 434. We have a budget line here at our church called the 434 fund. That's the fund that we use when someone in our spiritual family is in financial need to meet that need. Why? Acts 434 said there were no needy people among them. Because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. The earliest Jesus people, the first Jesus people, the OG Jesus people, built Jesus-shaped communities where they were glad to be together, where they shared meals in their homes, And in fact, they shared everything they had. And so roughly 1,800 years later, in the late 1960s, the Jesus freaks of the late 60s and early 70s looked a lot like those Jesus people. The Jesus people read that the earliest Jesus followers held everything in common. So in the House of Acts, which was started by Jim Dupe and Ted Wise, we talked about them last week, and their wives, they started this communal house. Why did they do that? Because they saw the believers in Acts sharing everything they had. Also, they were poor. We'll get to that in a minute. In the House of Acts, there was a drawer in the kitchen where there was a communal purse, right? Right? There were no restrictions on the drawer. Anyone could go to the drawer and take money out or put money in. I want you to imagine that there was a drawer in our church. That if you needed money that week, you could just take it out without talking to anybody about it. Because that was the rule, by the way. You, couldn't, you didn't talk about it, you just did it. Immediately what rises in you is a sense of suspicion. The Jesus people opened their homes and spread the gospel from house to house. The house of Acts... In the san francisco bay area was open to a number of guests over the years who were spiritually parented by the wisest and dupes connie frisbee Lonnie's wife lived in the house of acts before starting the house of miracles and she remembered that the house of acts was the first place that she quote ever had the feeling of being safe end quote now by the way this is remarkable You can't overly idealize it. Sandy Sands, the names on these people. (laughs) Sandy Sands was another long-term resident of the house. And as the house kind of continued on, the the people coming to the house were rougher and rougher. I mean, think about this. Remember that the Jesus people were emerging out of drug culture, right? So, you know, it wasn't like upper middle class people with full-time jobs. These were druggies that were coming and living in the house. So she remembered that sometimes she would take the kitchen cleaver and sleep across the front of the door of the kids' room. Okay? Interesting. The Enneagram Sixes in the room were like, I was already there, right? <laughs> right? They're like, yes, I know. Um, the key element of the early Jesus people movement was community living. And like, if you read the Time magazine articles about them and all this stuff, they're all like, and the Jesus people live in communes. Like, it was the weirdest thing, and the Jesus people just thought they were being family. In fact, they just thought they were being obedient to the scriptures, right? Larry Eskridge, in his uh, book on the Jesus people, says that communal living was a natural development of the Jesus people, and he cites three reasons for it, and one of them we've already talked about. One of them was, like, practical and economical, right? They just had no money. He said the dire condition of many of the hardcore street people who joined the early Jesus movement, for them, money was always in short supply. He says, listen to this, he says of the Jesus people in the late 1960s and early 70s, there were not many more destitute poor groups in poorest poor America society. In other words, these people were the poorest of the poor. They were the poorest of the poor. So of course they had to live together. But there, there are two other reasons that I think apply Uh, One was a discipleship-related necessity. Um, He says, given the characteristics of many of the people of the Jesus movement were reaching, given the people they were reaching, there was a real need for order, discipline, and a watchful eye to maintain progress in converts Christian walk. Listen to this. That meant you went and lived with someone, not just out of necessity, but so that you could be basically under constant spiritual supervision. I would just like you to counterbalance that against like, yeah, I show up to church about three out of five Sundays and I sometimes do a small group. This is not very American, right? The last reason, by the way, that they all live together, Ted Wise said this, we agreed on one thing, We ought to live the book of Acts like a script. So before we get to six day literal creation and taking the Bible literally, let's just take the Bible literally here. We thought we had to live out the book of Acts like a script. Do you know what? Do you know what the Jesus people with their fringed vests and dirty toes, do you know what they call the Bible? It's so corny, you've heard it basic instructions before leaving earth basic instructions before leaving earth wait a minute, not basic suggestions basic instructions before leaving earth and what they read on the pages of scripture they took as a command from Jesus and what we said last week is true if Jesus said it, the Jesus people did it because they love Jesus now over time, let's be fair the Jesus people kind of started to grow up. And we're not going to get to too much of that in this series about how um, the Jesus people kind of grow up and start having kids and then do realize that it's probably better to live in separate houses and they actually do start to get careers and but how that radically changes the face of the church because these people like had nowhere to go anymore for church, right? Because like what, you came radically saved through the Jesus people and were singing praise and worship songs in a field barefooted and now you're supposed to go to like a Lutheran church in a suit and sing hymns? Right. Um, so it radically changed the face of the church. But as, as and one of the ways they did that was this um, was through the coffee the, the coffee house. Um, one of the ways that communal living morphed was in the um, was through the, like the the cropping up of these coffee houses. And actually, in the beginning of the Jesus music documentary, Amy Grant, Amy Grant goes into uh, a coffee house where she would hear people singing Jesus music. And by the way, the coffee was terrible. Like, it wasn't like a coffee house. It was like, there's like a Mr. Coffee in the corner with burnt stuff in it, you know, and maybe a Coke machine, right? Um, these, co- the communal living, they, they kept shared spaces, but it was the coffee house. Uh, and they, Popped up everywhere and they had awesome names. I just had to share with you the names because I love them. Um, the Belly of the Whale, um, Holy Ghost Repair Service, <laughs> The Mustard Seed, Koinonia House, that's the one that uh, Amy grants in, uh, The Upper Room, The Ark, The Glory Barn, this is my favorite, this one's in Dayton, The House of the Risen Sun, right? Um, Paul Baker describes the coffee houses, he says sometimes they were small and quaint, they were usually more, no more than rented out storefronts. Interior decorations were colorful Jesus posters or even wall murals. Floors were a patchwork of old carpet square samples and a rainbow of colors. Usually a coffee machine and a Coke machine off to the side. And there was a good chance the sponsors of the coffee house would set up a small Jesus People bookstore. Now, these started to kind of take the country by storm. Some of them really little, because remember, like, Christians didn't like the Jesus people, right? Um, And so if they came to you and said, hey, we'd like to start a coffee house, but we need money, you would probably not give them anything or maybe you'd give them $5. And so some of these coffee houses were just like in church basements and like scary, right? But some of them uh, were like full-blown concert venues because music, this is where the Jesus music erupted, right? And one of the key, key coffee houses, really the first of note is the Salt Company. The Salt Company, which was in Hollywood, California, um there's these stories of people like chuck smith all over the place and the pastor of this church in california was a it was a presbyterian church in california was about as straight laced as you could get but he just realized there was an opportunity to reach people and so he started this um salt company and um i mean all sorts of uh, famous jesus people music people like played there including larry norman it was a really big deal um But listen to to what the coffee houses' vibes were. This is what one researcher, a researcher visited a, a coffee house in Rockford, Illinois, and this is what he said. This is what I want you to catch. He said, physical closeness, hugging, clasping of hands, laying on of hands, and general physical contact is practice among participants. The coffee house is described in positive terms by most Jesus people as being warm, friendly, understanding, joyful, loving, constructive, refreshing, spiritual, beautiful, and so forth. He said it has those characteristics that so many youths search for in their home environment and unfortunately do not always find. Why are they going to the coffee house? Because they were looking for something that they couldn't find at home, and they found it in a spiritual family that met in a coffee shop. But he said it was joyful. So you thought I forgot that one, didn't you? Three points this sermon. There's the last one. In the 1960s, which we've glamorized and romanticized, it was not a time that people were glad to be together. Racial division, political division, generational division. It was not a time that people were glad to be together. If you were a member of the flower power hippie culture, odds are you had been rejected by your family. You'd been rejected by your church. Then you moved to Haight Ashbury, and then you were preyed on by some drug dealer or pimp. It was not a joyful environment, the 60s. And in the midst of this utter wasteland of joy, in the midst of this wilderness was no, where no one was glad to be with you, the Jesus people built communes and coffee shops like oases in the desert. where when you entered, you found someone who was glad to be with you. No matter how high, or hungover, or dirty, or smelly, or messed up you were. Because the Jesus people read the book of Acts like a script. They were committed to sharing their possessions. That's what Acts 2 says. They shared everything they had they shared. And in the last moments we have together, I just want to talk about that word. I want to talk about the word sharing. Sharing. Remember that the Jesus movement was oriented primarily around doing whatever it is they felt like Jesus was telling them to do. And last week we talked about how it was like this radical, obnoxious Commitment to telling others about Jesus. It was this free practice of the power of the Holy Spirit. Mike McCoy, and you'll, you can hear this in a later episode of the podcast, tells a story uh, about one of the commune houses that his friends were living in and how um, these houses would kind of, again, become an oasis in the desert. And so they people would start coming to faith and they would give up their drugs, which became an economic problem for drug dealers, right? The supply and demand was off. And so this biker gang drug dealer group that was very upset with this communal house would start driving by on their motorcycles. One time they went out and found all the bikers like breaking all of the windows on their cars. And so this this is gonna blow your mind. Um, and some of us are just gonna believe it's not true. But um, so that... One of them goes out and sees the guys riding and they've been terrorizing them for weeks and he just comes out on the front porch and puts his hand out and says, stop in the name of Jesus. And all of their motorcycle bites fell over. And he's like, we don't have it. We we just did it because why Jesus said it, right? Um, There's this radical commitment to doing whatever it is they feel like Jesus is calling them to do. And in this case when they lived the book of Acts like a script, it caused them to share their lives, to share their homes, to share their tables with joy, with gladness to be together. Now, here's the thing. Listen to me. Listen very carefully. As I'm saying the word share, you are mentally replacing it with the word give. When I'm saying the word share, you might be mentally replacing it with the word give. Because as Midwesterners who believe that good fences make good neighbors, we are very good at giving, we are not very good at sharing. And let's let's be honest about why. Giving has an easy in and an easy out. Right? give you the money, I feel good about myself, I get to walk away, not my circus, not my monkeys. But when I share, when I share my lawnmower with you and you bring it back broken, very much my circus and very much my monkeys, right? So Steph and I had two young adults, at least one young adult, sometimes two, living in our home from 2017 to about 2019. And it was beautiful and it was fun and it was so annoying and frustrating and hard There's stains on my carpet that weren't there before. And actually, by the way, it's really actually not my carpet, it's actually your carpet that you're sharing with me, isn't it, right? So let me rephrase that, there's stains on your carpet. Um, There's some places where, um, you know, bringing the laundry baskets up, you know, you're going around the corner, we've scraped scraped your paint, I'm sorry to say. Um, Um, we loved having those young adults live with us but when we had conflict and we did I couldn't just like go home because when I did there they were (laughs) right Um, sharing is far messier right Right? because there's no clear line anymore of what's yours and what's mine, if it's all ours, right? Now hear me, giving is something that Jesus commands us to do. It's something that the Jesus people did. It's, it's good. And yet Jesus, as he so often does, is always inviting us further in, and further in is sharing. And to me, the difference between sharing and giving is the level of joy that you experience while giving is faster and more convenient and has some joy to it, sharing leads to an infinitely higher measure of joy or can. Right? I mean, there was no sweeter season. Um, there, There were few sweeter seasons than when Aaron was with us when Jack was in the house. That was a precious time and Jack is thrilled that his room is now Uncle Aaron's room. Um, And also very clear with us, now that Uncle Aaron is getting married in October, that our downstairs room is Uncle Aaron's room now, for obvious reasons. Um, And I think what we forfeit when we just take a posture of giving and not sharing, is what we forfeit is is a measure of joy. Interestingly, by the way, Just a a thing I've recently learned is that, and that I think makes Regen really beautiful, is that our brains um, are at some of their highest achievable joy levels when there are four generations in a room. When there are four generations in a room. Not three, but four. So, see what I mean? It's great. What we miss when we don't share is, is on a measure of joy that the Lord has for us. I think that's partially why they had joy because they shared meals, they shared their homes, and so my my question to you this morning is: What do you have that God is calling you to share? What do you have that God is calling you to share? Is it a bedroom in your house? Is it your car? Is it your table? Is there someone that needs to be around your table, not just like once every once in a while, but maybe on a regular basis? Not just because we like being together, but also secret because maybe they need that level of investment in discipleship, right? Is it your life? Is God calling you to share your life? In other words, is he calling you to share your most valuable resource, which is your time? Right? I think that's another reason why we like giving. Because we can often do it with our money and be done. And still have our most precious resource, which is time. And hear me. Time is short. Right? If you're retired in this room, you're busier than you were when you weren't, right? You're busier than now than you were when you were working. A lot of the young families in our church are like that peak level of like career and child busyness. And if we're not yet, it's coming, right? Um, time is short. But is Jesus asking you to share some of that? And and I, let me just give you a, a concrete nudge, okay? Okay. Um, Jess Bradley, this is her last Sunday as our director of kidsmen, and next Sunday is Caitlin Collins is stepping into that role, and there's been a transition there. And we need people who are willing to share their lives with our kids. And here's what I mean by that: I, I need somebody in our, I need multiple people in our spiritual family saying to Jack the same things that I'm saying to him, right? So I don't need you to be a warm body for an hour. What the young families in our church need is somebody that's invested in our kids with us, right? And so just by the way, as a a sign and a step of obedience that direction, I'm gonna be not preaching in a weekend in October because Steph will be, and you will find, I've been meaning to, I will be in the back Um, because I wanna be invested in your kids, right? I wanna share my life with them Um, because one of the ways that I've been formed throughout my life, is by adults who weren't my parents sharing their life with me. Yeah? Um, The Jesus people shared their lives and their homes and their possessions with people because they love Jesus. And they knew it was their love that would declare to the world that they belong to him, their love for each other. In 1966, Peter Schultz uh, was a Catholic priest serving St. Brendan's Parish on the south side of Chicago. And there had been some racial violence in his neighborhood and he was leading some children's choirs and some things like this. And he just couldn't find a song to accompany kind of the moment and the things that he was doing with these, these children's choirs. And so he wrote a song and the words to that song are We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity will one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yeah, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Carl Daw is a professor of of hymnody, of hymns at Boston School of Theology. Sounds like a boring job. Uh, He says that song is the anthem of the Jesus Movement. If you watch the Jesus Music documentary, it'll talk about Explo 72 and Billy Graham kind of rubber stamped the Jesus people, which is a footnote some Jesus people feel like is when the Jesus Movement sold out. Always two sides to every story. 200,000 young people descended on Dallas, and there's a clip of them all singing, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Um, it's a protest song it's a protest song it's not a let's close our eyes kumbaya because we're so lovey of you it's a protest song it was received as a protest song just like Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind or Pete Seeger's where have all the, where have all the flowers gone it was a, it's a protest song it's a song of protest against a world that wants to divide us CNN and Fox News have one vested interest in our church and that's to split us apart There's an election in a couple months, there's one vested interest in our church and it's to split us apart. The enemy would love to divide us along political lines, along generational lines, along theological lines. He said, just a little bit before we have the lunch we're about to have. And so we protest that by sharing our lives in our homes. We protest that because they'll know we are Christians by our love. Amen.